Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I grew up in Stanford, California, and my parents were law professors at Stanford. Last December, we spoke to Sam Bankman-Fried, also known as SBF, for an episode we called Meet the Crypto Kings. He told us a bit about his background. I went to MIT and majored in physics there. I really liked being there. Um, I sort of also realized that I didn't really want to be an academic. Instead, he joined the trading firm Jane Street Capital, and then quit in 2017 to found his own trading firm, Alameda Research. And it was really when, when crypto was kind of going crazy. And, you know, enough so that sort of everyone was talking about crypto then. It was hard not to be. And uh, I, I sort of saw it from the outside as an area that just based on the things that you could see that were going on was pretty likely to have a lot of the properties of a field where there were really good trades to do. Two years later, in 2019, he founded FTX. At the beginning of, of FTX's history, Alameda was really important to it because it's hard to get a lot of market makers onboarded to a brand new exchange. But over time, it's become much less important. Much less important. Until last week, that is, when the incestuous relationship between Alameda and FTX was revealed by the website Coindesk. Sam Bankman-Fried's Alameda Research traded billions of dollars from FTX accounts and leveraged the exchange's native tokens. As On November 11th, FTX filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy with an $8 billion hole in its balance sheet, and the former king of crypto has been reduced to a pauper. Tonight, the cryptocurrency world is reeling after the meltdown of one of its most popular trading platforms. The exchange, FTX, filed for bankruptcy protection today. Orderly is difficult when you have an entity that has 130 entities across the globe. Now, according to the Wall Street Journal, both the Justice Department and the Securities and Exchange Commission are investigating FTX. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Alice Forward. And I'm Simea Keynes. And in today's show, what happened at FTX and what does its implosion mean for the future of crypto? First, we'll walk through just how it all unraveled. What appears to have happened at FTX, and we will learn more as it goes through the bankruptcy courts, is we had a bad actor operating offshore, absent regulation, take advantage of customers, and apparently misappropriate customer funds. And this could not stand in further contrast to Coinbase. And we'll discuss if this is crypto's layman moment, or Enron, or Madoff. It is now a lot harder to see it coming back than it was after previous scams, because 
you just get this feeling of frustration that this seems to happen over and over again. We'll look at who has been affected by SBF's fall beyond the crypto world. It's honestly really been a blur and it's all been quite shocking. Uh, and it feels like each day just brings more horrifying revelations than the, the previous day. And ask what parts of crypto can and should be salvaged. Okay, Alice, what a week. Yes, yes, it really, it really has been a week. Uh, I'm a little worried for my sanity after I spent most of my weekend in various Twitter spaces listening to some quite good and some very not good theories about what was going on at FTX. I mean, honestly, when you put it like that, I'm pretty jealous. Um, but not as jealous as Mike must be as we get to watch this insane car crash while he has to be on holiday in Tokyo. Yes, you know, being on holiday in Tokyo sounds wonderful, but uh, given that Mike is a, a rabid news junkie, I think he's probably uh, quite, quite jealous. He can't be with us. <laughs> right. Um, but let's dive into it. Before we get into what's gone wrong, can you start by giving us a bit more background on this Sam Bankman-Fried guy and his various enterprises? Right. So we went over a bit about who Sam Bankman-Fried was uh, in the opening of the show. But just to give you the highlights, he founded Alameda in 2017. Uh, he appeared to be extremely successful, in particular at essentially providing sort of market making and liquidity services to crypto markets. So arbitraging some nascent crypto markets uh, in Korea and Japan. And that uh, was supposed to have earned him enough capital and sort of now to then start FTX, this sort of big uh, cryptocurrency exchange in 2019. And he seemed to very rapidly gain market share that parlayed into a huge valuation and a huge amount of funding from venture capitalists. So a sort of handful of, of big uh, venture firms handed him around sort of $2 billion of venture funding. He was young. He was a floppy-haired vegan who uh, favoured sleeping on beanbags. FDX was advertised during the Super Bowl. Uh, it bought the naming rights to the Miami Heat Stadium. And all of this catapulted uh, Mr. Bankman-Fried and his exchange, FTX, into the spotlight. Yeah, he really does seem to be this fairly extraordinary character. I mean, I think one of my favourite images was one of Tony Blair and Bill Clinton on a panel. They were wearing suits, you know, normal, semi-formal attire. Meanwhile, SBF is sitting next to them wearing trainers, white socks, shorts, and a T-shirt. Um, and, and, you know, sure, sure, he, he could. Good for him. Um, but let's talk about how it all unraveled. Yeah, so I think it all really started to unravel, at least in public, on November 2nd, which is when there was a report from Coindesk alleging that Alameda had a huge uh, slice of its assets in FTT tokens. Now, FTT is the cryptocurrency token issued by and associated with FTX. And Alameda owned huge amounts of this token. So a couple of days after this happened, Changpeng Zhao, who's the head of the biggest exchange, uh, Binance, and was someone who, you know, at first uh, was a real supporter of Sam Bankman Freed. He gave him capital uh, at the end of 2019 to sort of help him get FTX started. But relations had really soured between the two of them. 
And he'd received a huge number of FTT tokens um, when FTX and Binance sort of terminated that deal that they had agreed to in 2019. And he tweeted that after the uh, revelations about Alameda's balance sheet, he was going to unload all of the FTT he was holding. So that was nearly half a billion dollars worth at the sort of current uh, market valuation. Right. I mean, I think he later said that he didn't actually end up unloading all of it. Um, but yes, like that that was a big moment and led to all sorts of, of turmoil. Uh, tell us about that. Yes. And after he said this, and, and you're right, he didn't actually manage to sell very much of it at all. Um, it seems to sort of kick off a run or an effective run on FTX as an exchange. Sam Bankman-Fried has since confirmed that there are about $5 billion worth of withdrawals um, in a matter of days from FTX. And they stopped being able to meet those withdrawal requests at some point on uh, November 7th or 8th. And then around lunchtime on November 8th, uh, Chang Peng Zhao, who also goes by his initials and is commonly referred to as CZ, uh, agreed to buy FTX. But apparently, as soon as they got a look at the financial situation that FTX was in, uh, CZ sort of immediately changed his mind. And things really unraveled very quickly from there. And then on the morning of November 11th, uh, all three of his businesses uh, were put into what's called a freefall bankruptcy. And even since then, the sort of drama has not stopped. So it unraveled extremely quickly. It's been very dizzying. It's been a, it's been a wild ride. Um, I mean, you said that there isn't that much information out there associated with these these bankruptcy filings. But what do we know about the issues with the financials here? I mean, I, I've seen various odd-looking spreadsheets floating around. Yes, the spreadsheets. So the Financial Times managed to get its hands on a uh, balance sheet uh, in an Excel sheet that Sam Bankman-Fried was supposed to have been circulating to investors last week. And it really revealed sort of just how unbelievably chaotic um, FTX appears to have been run and also how little it has to show for the money that has been given by depositors. So if you add up the sort of assets and liabilities on FTX's balance sheet that were revealed in, in that spreadsheet, and also sort of add in some of the assets and liabilities that Coindesk reported on, then what you have is that Mr. Bankman-Fried's firms took in about $14 billion worth of deposits. Um, Alameda took out about $8 billion worth of loans. He'd raised about $2 billion worth of equity capital from investors. And he managed to give about $5 billion back in total to people savvy enough to run quickly. And he seems to hold in total around sort of $4 billion in equities, uh, especially in the firm Robinhood and various venture investments. And all he has left to show for the rest of the money, which is between sort of 7 and $13 billion, depending on how much of the loans that Alameda took out were actually owed to FTX themselves, are essentially some, uh, and pardon my French here, shitcoins, as they're affectionately called in crypto circles. And those FTT tokens, which are, you know, essentially a pile of magic beans he conjured out of thin air. There's just a huge question mark about where on earth all of this money has gone. Okay, I mean, this all seems completely ridiculous. And my question for you, um, crypto nerd, is... How did no one notice? Shouldn't someone have done some due diligence and worked out that there was a bit of a problem here? Yeah, it's a great question and one that, you know, everyone who deposited money in FTX, gave him uh, investment funds and sort of works in the industry has been sort of 
asking themselves this week. So Anthony Scaramucci, who was the erstwhile press secretary of Donald Trump and uh, runs an investment firm that Sam Bankman-Fried actually had invested in. They, they'd hosted a conference together. He was speaking at the Bloomberg New Economy Forum this week. Uh, if you're running a background check on somebody like Sam, you're not going to find anything. You know, um, you know, he was uh, unblemished, if you will, prior to this incident. So I think it's an issue of certain things are going to fall through the cracks, whether you like it or not. Now, remember, he was giving me the money, and so I was looking and I was doing a lot of due diligence on him, but clearly, clearly not enough. And, you know, one of the things to bear in mind is that FTX is a Bahamas headquartered exchange. You know, it's not licensed and, and re- registered in the U.S. Also, FTX was a private company. The information that it gave to investors was sort of essentially all they had to uh, rely on. And it raised a lot of money during the sort of frenzy of venture capital raising in 2021, when due diligence uh, was just slowing people down um, as they tripped over one another to give uh, money to businesses. Now, where do you think this sits on the scale of financial scandals? This is this is not our first rodeo. This has happened before. So, so put it put it in some context for us. Yeah, uh, a huge number of authorities, regulators are now investigating, including the Department of Justice, the Attorney General of Manhattan, uh, the SEC, the CFTC. Some Barmanian authorities are investing as well. And one of the sort of most interesting things about the fall of FTX is that it does have elements of basically sort of every great financial failure of all time. It has the bank run-esque dash for the exit. There's the layman-like domino effect of smaller institutions having failed and it eventually sort of cascading upwards from Luna and Celsius and Voyager until it took out the sort of huge institution, uh, FTX, which is sort of wrecking the entire crypto system. There are definitely elements of the sort of deceptive accounting of Enron uh, and the suckering in of of retail investors uh, who find their money has vanished, which is akin to what Bernie Madoff did. And so, you know, people often say that crypto is is relearning all of the lessons of finance at warp speed. And this is a a sort of new milestone. It it learned all the ways in which finance can deceive people and go wrong all at once. Yeah. And and obviously, this is completely awful for the people who could lose their savings. But it has also prompted a lot of glee from all of the the crypto skeptics at the same time. Um, And also anticipation. I am extraordinarily excited about the forthcoming Michael Lewis book about the whole drama. But let's move on now. Now, tell us what you've been learning about the effects on the wider crypto industry. Yes, we can uh, uh, turn away, sadly, from the all the juicy details, um, which include SBF giving an interview to the New York Times in which he said that he was playing video games to relax, you know, at this difficult time for him. Uh, he's tweeting out cryptic messages, uh, all while his lawyers continue to sort of scramble to file uh, proper bankruptcy paperwork. And, you know, the question whenever crypto has these sort of big hacks or scams or um, or sort of chaotic collapses of its sort of most important institutions is, is this the beginning of the end? Is this the sort of fatal blow? And one of the obvious places to look in part because there seems to have been a sort of a bit of a, a mass withdrawal from all exchanges basically in the wake of FTX failing is at the other exchanges. So Binance is of course the biggest one, uh, but it's also headquarterless. It sort of has studiously avoided being regulated anywhere. And it seems to be seeing sort of heaviest um, uh, outflows. 
But another exchange, which is the second biggest, is Coinbase. And it has taken the, the opposite tack. It has tried its best to adhere to and engage with regulators. It's a publicly listed company in America. And so I called up the company's CFO, Alicia Haas. Uh, hello, Alicia, and welcome to Money Talks. Thank you, Alice. Happy to be here with you today. So to the extent that we know yet, what do you think happened to FTX and could the same happen at Coinbase? What appears to have happened at FTX, and we will learn more as it goes through the bankruptcy courts, is we had a bad actor operating offshore, absent regulation, take advantage of customers and apparently misappropriate customer funds. And this could not stand in further contrast to Coinbase as we've taken a fundamentally different approach where we are US regulated. We have strong legal and operational protections that we hold all of our client assets one for one. We don't lend them out. We don't rehypothecate. We don't do anything with customer assets that the customer doesn't specifically direct us to do. In addition to our strong protection of customer assets, we have a very strong balance sheet with over $5 billion of cash. We had de minimis exposure to FTX. We had about $15 million of exposure, which was normal course liquidity that we used to facilitate customer trades on various exchanges. And to us, what this just highlights is the importance of regulatory clarity so that customers have the ability to interact with products and service providers who are in compliance with laws and regulations. And what kind of proof do you offer your customers that you're doing that? So you can see that in our audited financial statements, that if you look at our 10Q that was filed just last week, actually, for September 30th, on our balance sheet, you can see customer fiat and customer crypto. And there's a corresponding liability for the same amount for customer fiat and customer crypto. And so you can see that those are assets and liabilities that offset one-to-one. And then it's also in our terms of service. What's important is we're also audited. We will be producing an audit at the end of the year, and people can then have that further assurance. Got it. So how do you make money then as an exchange? When customers buy and sell crypto on our platform, we earn a fee for that transaction. So we monetize based on the transaction. For our institutional customers, we also have a product where for storing their assets, they pay us a custody fee. So it's BIPs on the balances that we hold for them. They pay us a fee. We have a product called staking where customers choose to stake their assets and they earn a reward for holding those assets. And we earn a percentage of that staking reward that they earn. So we're making money off of the assets, but not doing that without the customer's direction. So before a customer trades, they see the fee, then they choose to hit the place trade order. So we don't do anything behind the scenes to monetize our customers in any way that they're not fully upfront and visible to them. So why, if you're regulated and you provide this proof of customer funds and you sort of make money in in more traditional ways for an exchange, why isn't everyone just using you as a a regulated exchange? Why would you go to something like FTX or Binance, these offshore, less regulated exchanges? Just anecdotally, what we can share is that global monthly crypto spot volume declined 18% when comparing September to January of 2022. That's the global number. But the U.S. monthly volume declined 50% over the same time period. And so when we look at that, we can see that there's been a shift to offshore service providers. And we believe that one of the drivers of this is the regulatory uncertainty that exists here in the U.S. 
that because we don't have clarity from the SEC, the CFTC on trading of spot currencies. I feel like the SEC, you know, Gary Gensler has been quite clear for a long time now that essentially he thinks most crypto are securities and therefore the exchanges that offer transactions in crypto tokens are probably securities exchanges as well. Is that not clear or is it just that that crypto doesn't like what he's suggesting? We believe that there is no clarity. If it was clear you wouldn't have all of this confusion because we all seek to follow the rules. And if the rule was clear, we'd be following it. We believe 100% that the assets that we've listed on our platform are not securities as you interpret them under the current US laws. We absolutely believe that some of the assets are securities, though, that are out there today. And we choose not to list those on our exchange. We go through a vetting process, and there's thousands of crypto assets. We list a few hundred. And so We believe that there are, we believe that there also should be crypto securities, and we would love a path to getting those crypto securities regulated and have an exchange that you can trade those crypto securities as well. Yes, the FTT token in particular looks an awful lot like a security, and uh, it's not listed on your platform. It is not. That's correct. I can't speak to that asset, whether it is a security, but I can say it is not listed on our platform. So what do you expect to happen with regulation now? There have been various bills floating around the hill. Surely there's going to have to be a renewed focus on those being about the exchanges in addition to stable coins and other things. So what do you expect legislators and regulators to do next? So I think this event underscores the need for global regulatory coordination. But what happened with FTX, I think it's important to say there's always been in the whole history of time, bad actors. And the bad actor is not unique to crypto, and it doesn't mean that crypto should then be the change the trajectory of regulation than what it was before. It means that we need to have regulation that's thoughtful, but a bad actor has occurred throughout history in regulated markets as well. And so I just want to make sure we all understand that regulation is a tool. We can use the learnings of this to get the regulations tighter to protect consumers, but it is not going to necessarily solve all of the problems that you have with bad actors operating offshore in non-US jurisdictions. Thank you so much, Alicia. That was very helpful. Thank you for having me. Okay, I mean, this is clearly a great moment for Coinbase to be shouting about its adherence to to regulation, um, or at least its attempts to adhere to regulation that isn't quite in place yet. Um, and, And so far, it's been working out pretty well for them, right? Yeah, that, it certainly seems to be the way if you look at some of those sort of blockchain explorers who are totting up flows in and out of exchanges, it seems like there has been a sort of flight to quality um, and that Coinbase is, is seeing net inflows rather than net outflows, uh, which is definitely bucking the trend. But that isn't the same as saying, you know, the entire industry is safe. No, no, that makes sense. So after the break, we will look at who else has been affected by the downfall of SBF, FTX, and the 100 or so related entities. But first... We must really encourage you to take out a subscription to The Economist. Readers can get all of your great reporting into what went wrong and what happens next for crypto. Readers can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You should check out our newsletters like Money Talks, The Bottom Line, and our newly launched Drum Tower newsletter, which is a great companion to our newest podcast of the same name. It features our Beijing bureau chief, David Reddy, and China correspondent, Alice Su, and I really can't recommend it strongly enough if you're curious to find out what's happening in the world's second largest economy. 
You can find The Drum Tower wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, the implosion of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried's other hundred or so projects clearly has hurt the reputation of the crypto industry, as Alicia was just saying. And it's impacted scores of its investors and people who kept money on FTX as well. But SBF was also the face of what's become a pretty trendy movement in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, which is effective altruism. Here's how he explained it to us last year. Yeah, I mean, you know, the reason that I originally got involved in the industry was uh, Ernie Kip, you know, was uh, as a way to make what I could be able to, to to donate what I could. And, you know, my, my goal is to find the, the most effective places uh, to, to give my money to and to be able to give as much as I can to them. Now, with SPF's implosion, some big questions being raised about the future of that movement as well. Our colleague Arjun Romani has been looking into it. Arjun, hello. I think this is the first time we've sat down together for Money Talks. So how are you doing? Doing well. It's been a crazy week. It really has. And you've been looking into one of the most sort of fascinating pieces of this puzzle, which is the effective altruism movement. So what have you found out? And how is the EA community reacting to the news? Well, I think first it helps to maybe take a step back and explain what EA is, because that may give us a clue into Sam Bankman-Fried's worldview. So I think the definition of EA is something like it's a social movement and a research agenda aimed at maximizing the good one does with one's time and money. So you can think of, you know, mostly young, highly educated people who, you know, they really like calculating expected value and doing math to guide their decision making. And the movement kind of took inspiration from utilitarian philosophy. So Peter Singer, who's a philosopher, inspired many of the founders of EA who a lot of them are from Oxford uh, University at the beginning of the 2010s. And one of those philosophers, Will McCaskill, is kind of a central figure in this story because not only did he write many of the books and kind of foundational texts that a lot of EAs read, but he also was a mentor to Sam Bankman-Fried throughout his career and actually encouraged him to work in the finance industry to make money to give back to good causes. So that idea is called earning to give, where you earn a lot of money and then you donate it to these really highly rigorous charities. And the argument is that could actually be better than working on those problems directly. Though now the EA community does actually recommend that people do both. And they've kind of shifted the recommendations. Okay. And before we get to the downfall of it all, did Sam Magman-Fried, you know, put his money where his mouth was? Did he donate to EA courses? And what were they? Oh, yeah, totally. So he has several philanthropic 
foundations. One is called the FTX Future Fund, which launched in February of this year. And it's focused on donating to causes devoted to the long-term future of humanity. So think things like promoting the safe development of really powerful artificial intelligence. And they've recommended several hundred grants, totaling nearly $200 million in just a short 10-month lifespan. And he funds tons of organizations, like One Day Sooner. I spoke to Josh Morrison, the head. FTX was one of our funders. Um, They were our uh, fourth biggest funder over the last year. He said that FTX provided about 10% of their funds. So it's not a good situation to be in, but it's obviously not the really terrible situation a lot of other groups are in and that a lot of you know, people are for losing their, their savings. So the causes SBF was funding were utility maximizing. Were they in specific sectors? A really interesting thing about the history here is that SBF's career arc actually mirrors the evolution of the EA movement's priorities. So if you look at 2015, back when the movement was much, much smaller, you know, around $100 million in donations per year, nearly all of it was for global poverty alleviation, development, and so forth. But this year, in 2021, funding had grown to nearly $600 million a year, and nearly 40% of it was devoted to long-termism so far this year before FTX collapsed. Yes, it seems like the EA movement has sort of focused on these ever bigger and bigger goals and I guess needed ever more capital to potentially tackle some of them. So what is the sense now that a huge portion of that capital might be gone? Yeah, I think there's a a real reckoning that's happening in the EA community right now. I think the two most common emotions are sadness and anger. So people, you know, are saying things like Sam betrayed us. A lot of them had changed career plans or were expecting to be able to work on certain projects because of the massive amount of money that SBF had donated, and now they have to rethink all of that. And it's worth noting, that actually, that a lot of these activities are really important, such as things like pandemic preparedness that are no longer going to be able to happen. So is the loss of the money the problem, or are EA's problems much bigger than that? I think the bigger impact than... The money, even though, is the reputational cost of all this. So criticisms that EAs are too utilitarian and, and they take excessive risks ring far truer when the hubris of one of its figureheads causes billions in consumer deposits to evaporate. But one day sooner as Josh Morrison says he isn't convinced that SBF was really acting according to EA principles. I haven't seen anything that, that to me makes it feel like the, the bigger story here is this person was a utilitarian and then did awful things rather than, you know, this person uh, lost money and tried to, to cover it up and then and did awful things to do that. And that's, I think, a pretty, you know, sadly common story. Do you think the downfall of Sam Bankman-Fried is the end of effective altruism or can the movement survive him? In the short term, it will certainly be very negative for the movement. So I think fewer people may want to identify as EA. We might see fewer college students sign up. That's a sentiment that several people expressed to me. The other thing to note is where the remaining source of uh, money is, and that's going to be from you know, Facebook co-founder Dustin Moskovitz, who is kind of the original billionaire who backed EA quite heavily. His wealth has plummeted quite a bit due to the share slides of Meta and Asana, which is another company that he founded. But he still has a lot of money. So though the movement is no longer funding unconstrained, like it seemed like they were in 2021, 
they will still have enough money to fund a lot of their activities. I think the bigger problem here and the bigger uncertainty is how the public perceives the movement. I think there is this sense to which the movement really, really embraced Sam Beckman-Fried. And in fact, Dustin Moskovitz even tweeted that, and I quote, either EA encouraged Sam's unethical behavior or provided a convenient rationalization for such actions, either is bad. And so that kind of reckoning is, is forcing a lot of EAs to take a long, hard look in the mirror, like Josh Morrison. So I think there's definitely stuff we need to do differently. And I think the biggest thing is creating a, a better way to vet and critique uh, donors and powerful people in the community. I think over the last couple of years, the community has become, uh, there, there's been a lot of energy in sort of centralization for the, the community. And I think that, you know, that was very well intentioned. And I think I've benefited from a lot of the community building that was done. But I think what you're going to need to see in the future is a more decentralized, liberal, effective altruism that doesn't think it has the right, all the right answers and is more humble and less focused on, you know, these uh, incredible, you know, infinite amounts of benefit and is also more cautious and, and understanding of the need for internal controls and um, being more careful. Yes, maybe effective altruism is at a crossroads, uh, as we love to say at The Economist. <laughs> I think that's true. Arjun, thank you so much for joining me, and I hope we get to have you on very soon again. Thank you, Alice. It was, it was really fun. So it sounds like this could spill over to the effective altruism movement, although, I mean... <laughs> If it relied that much on one guy for its reputation, then maybe there was a deeper problem there. I mean, for what it's worth, I suspect that effective altruism will survive. Um, just for a bit, there might be a bit less cash swimming around. Yes, I, I think that's probably right. Um, but it's not just charity that he was he was giving money to. There's also been a sort of huge political backlash uh, in the US because SBF was also a sort of big donor to Democratic candidates to the tune of around sort of $37 million in the last election cycle. Republicans in general are having an absolute field day with this, but it is worth pointing out that uh, SBF's top deputy, Ryan Salme, donated uh, nearly $90 million to Republicans as well. Yeah, that's that's not a trivial amount. Um, so that's charity and politics. But what about the industry more broadly? Is this the end of crypto? Is the crypto winter now a crypto permafrost? That is a great question. And to answer it, I asked Josh Roberts, who's writing our leader for the paper this week, to join me for a discussion. Josh, hello. Welcome to the show. Hi, Alice. Thank you. How do you view what's happened at FTX? I think it just all looks like a bit of an object lesson in why all these sorts of businesses ought to be really strongly regulated. You know, you started out with this dream of crypto assets banishing heavy-handed regulators. But the simple fact that you can mix all of those three functions into one, that that is such a toxic mix, that that puts incentives on each of the arms to give incestuous loans to each other and to have pretty dodgy collateral arrangements, and then to take outsized risk on that. This is all an object lesson in why they should be segregated and really heavily regulated. 
Yeah, and as we mentioned earlier, there does seem to be this sort of exodus from a lot of exchanges and something of a flight to safer, better regulated ones. So Coinbase seems to be seeing inflows in contrast to much of the industry. Maybe people are belatedly realising that they should have voted with their feet and picked better regulated exchanges to begin with. Do you think that the problem might solve itself, therefore? Will people never trust an exchange like FTX again? Well, it would be really interesting, wouldn't it, if the way this ended was that the only exchanges people really trusted were those that actually behaved pretty much exactly like traditional financial exchanges, you know, that that only kept really liquid assets that held all of their client deposits in segregated accounts, that didn't do any of the sort of freewheeling stuff that FTX made a lot of money doing originally. And we just go back to recreating another version of the same financial system. Yeah, on that point about regulation, I mean, a lot of people seem to be pointing the finger at regulators and saying, oh, this is their fault because they didn't crack down on these kinds of exchanges earlier. Do you think that's fair? How much blame should really be laid at the feet of regulators for not having done something sooner? Well, in my honest opinion, I'm not sure anybody who is depositing their money with these exchanges any longer has the excuse of thinking that they were particularly well-regulated that this wasn't the Wild West. Crypto is, it's not that young anymore. We've had lots and lots of scandals like this. So I almost think that the people who were still in that space, they knew what they were getting in for. They, They knew that this was somewhere that they shouldn't deposit large shares of their assets because there was always a risk of something like this happening. Yeah, I'm kind of inclined to agree. It seems a bit tough to blame American or European regulators, given that this was an offshore exchange headquartered in the Bahamas. And exchanges have deliberately avoided locating in, in tougher jurisdictions. So what solutions should regulators be doing now, do you think? I think they should be focusing on making sure that places, certainly retail customers deposit their money, keep it in a way that you might expect it to be kept. Banks can have an excuse for being subject to runs because they take customer deposits and they lend them out longer term. If you deposit your money with something that calls itself an exchange, you don't necessarily expect them to do that. You don't expect that your funds could be subject to a run. So I think segregating those functions of keeping client money and trading and particularly lending out to hedge funds should be kept segregated. And in terms of what this means for crypto and, you know, some of the innovation that you see coming out of the space, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the argument people make that this was a failure of a big centralised institution. And that's the kind of institution that crypto was supposed to be founded to avoid. But if regulators come down really hard, they might crush some of the more interesting decentralised stuff in their attempt to get the centralised entity under the thumb. So do you think it's going to be possible for regulators to get the balance right How are they going to manage that? That's what you hope would happen in that it does seem that these big centralised institutions are the key risk. They're the key people who might be able to do unscrupulous things with investors' or clients' money. I suppose that would be a very difficult thing for a regulator to crack down on because the only way to do it would be to inhibit the innovative bit where you can create your own protocol and run anything you like. The only way to avoid somebody creating a nefarious one would be to put limits that would also limit people creating good innovative ones. 
Okay, and do you think that this is potentially the end for crypto? You know, is it a big enough scandal that it's it's a death knell? I mean, it is now a lot harder to see it coming back than it was after previous scams because you just get this feeling of frustration that this seems to happen over and over again. And now we've found that it's happened at the third biggest exchange, supposedly the respectable face of crypto, and you still don't have many of these really great use cases that should persuade people back in. So that's probably what it hinges on now. It probably hinges on somebody coming up with an application that really does look like a killer app and that persuades more investors that crypto might not just be a series of scams, that there is genuine promise there. There are lots of people to say, this could be a great sandbox for innovation. This is something to let run because you never know where it will go. And I think people now probably want a lot more proof that it has created something great rather than potential that it might. Josh, thank you so much for joining Money Talks. Thanks very much, Alice. So, Sumaya, let's uh, wrap this up. What do you make of all of this? Well, uh, it has been a fun weekend reading about the the drama. Um, I think my main takeaways from this episode are, though, first of all, that you've got these other exchanges that are now desperately trying to distance themselves from FTX, saying, no, no, they were the black sheep, but we're, we're great, we're okay. And I guess the danger for them is that trust is so badly damaged by all of this that their protestations just don't work, right? I mean, FTX was supposed to be the goody two-shoes of the lot. Um, this this doesn't look good. Um, on the future of crypto, I think that you and Josh both seem fairly hopeful um, that these practical uses will emerge and then people will be persuaded that crypto isn't only good for gambling on other crypto. Um, But I think for now, this does look like one nil to the the crypto skeptics. It's probably about 12 nil to the crypto skeptics at this point. But I I do agree with with your sort of point at the end there, which is that, you know, okay, this was a crypto business, but it it doesn't really embody the sort of point of of crypto. You know, it was a big centralized institution and... um, and the the exciting stuff you'd hope will be in all of the decentralized stuff that will come from the technology, not in the sort of big exchanges that were set up to sort of help people gamble on it. But I, I guess we'll sort of have to see whether anything that comes out of that could be useful enough that the uh, the casinos will be the less interesting part of it. And uh, with that, we should probably turn to our stats of the week. And although he was here with us in spirit, but not on the show um, for for the whole thing, we have managed to get a stat from Mike. So I'll let him take it away. So I am absolutely gutted to have been on holiday this week and to miss the episode because the subject matter is about as exciting as it gets. Um, My statistic of the week is negative 1.2%. That's the annualized decline in GDP in Japan in the third quarter. The reason I chose that stat is because I am in Tokyo right now and it is my intention to consume so much sushi, so much ramen, to buy so many clothes that uh, it reverses the Japanese GDP statistics. I want it to be visible in the balance of payments numbers 
Um, yeah, so if you see any sudden big moves in the yen, that's not the Bank of Japan intervening. That is just me with my credit card. That's it. My only question is why Mike isn't promising to buy a ton of really expensive podcasting equipment. Um, I think it, if I'm honest, it shows a lack of commitment. Um, so we'll we'll have to bring that up next time. Um, my stat is $7,394,877, which is a figure on the FTX Trading Limited balance sheet leaked by the Financial Times that FSBF seems to have been sharing with investors. It's associated with a mystery asset called, in caps lock, Trump Lose. Um, apparently, it's quite illiquid, which is very, very surprising. Um, although perhaps less so than the $8 billion labelled hidden, poorly labelled at fiat account. Arguably, not a very desirable thing to have on a balance sheet. Yes, that, that balance sheet was a real gift in terms of just uh, what a balance sheet would look like if you attempted to account for somebody's dreams, essentially. Um, <laughs> I'm going to stick... With uh, with Trump lose, I guess, because uh, my stat of the week is one hundred million dollars, which is the total amount of money that was donated by Ken Griffin, who is the founder of Citadel and a big wig on Wall Street, and uh, Stephen Schwartzman, who's the founder of Blackstone and is another sort of Wall Street uh, uh, big wig. Uh, that's the sort of total amount that they gave in the twenty twenty election cycle. And both of them have come out saying that they are not going to be giving any money to Trump this cycle after he announced his uh, presidential run for 2024. Oh, American election cycles, 2024 already. Yes, I uh, I mean, the last 10 days have felt like two years, so maybe it will arrive quite quickly. But with that, we should give our thanks this week to Alicia Haas and Josh Morrison. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher. Our sound engineer is Nico Ralfast. Our editor, for the final time, no, is Kim Gisselson. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Samaya Keynes. And this is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.